0: What's something that uh, you've had a heavy hand in making better?
1: LCI has partnered with Bosch Refine My Site, and we're doing a lean roadshow. We did the first event in Chicago in May. I'm one of the the key facilitators on day one. And so myself and and the other primary facilitators sat down and did a huge PDCA Mm. on the whole session. And, And there are going to be a lot of constants this time around, but a lot of major changes that I was spending a bunch of time, even yesterday, still wrapping up.
0: Phenomenal. I saw the video that they posted on their YouTube channel too, and some of the the content on social media, and I'll get there to one of those, but we'll put a link in the description below for that video so people can see. Wow. Cool. Cool question. Uh, Actually, myself, I've had a very heavy hand (laughs) in
2: making myself better. Um, I I am, uh, thanks to Renee, uh, I am studying motivation. There's there's 40 years of research by a couple of guys in University of Rochester named uh, DC and Ryan, Uh, both professors, both researchers. uh, Deep research in all kinds of industries and literally around the world and uh, they have developed self determination theory. uh, And they have determined that motivation is dependent upon the addressing of three human needs, the need for relatedness for competence and for autonomy. And that will relate to today's discussion.
0: Oh my God, Dan! Those are those are so tightly related to Scrum. Yeah, how, I mean it's just incredible. So you said relatedness, autonomy, and mastery.
2: And yeah, mastery competence is what they this word they use, but
0: mastery is is good. Yeah, yeah. Relatedness. What is uh, that like? Can you explain that a little bit more? With
2: each other, it's the human connection, like, like the three of us. We have relatedness with each other, partially based on knowing each other a while, partially based on uh, our mutual, self, mutual interest in the industry and in, in you know, the topics that we develop in our minds and for others, and partly because we just like each other, you know, uh, and, and we're pretty open and vulnerable with each other. I can think of many conversations that we've had one-on-one with each
0: other that are, you know, real. I love the topic of learning people you're in store for a great episode. Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better, for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by...
3: Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple collaborative ecosystem system. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French, and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, scheduling manager at Oakland Construction,
1: Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last climate season.
3: Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refine My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refine My Site for free for 60 days.
0: Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Welcome to the BFC show. Welcome, Rebecca and Dan. Oh, my goodness gracious. The two of you have been just so integral and the part of my journey as I've worked and worked better, making things easier and better across the industry. The two of you, just incredible stories. But for those that don't know you, please introduce yourselves to the EBFC show audience and people. If you've got questions or comments for Dan and Rebecca, do not hesitate to comment on any social media or wherever you're watching this. We will be watching to be responding and engaging with all of you Leave no question unasked.
1: Awesome. thank you, Felipe. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I my name is Rebecca, and I'm the owner of RS Consulting. And I have been in this lean design and construction space since 2006. Really, is when I kind of got started. Um, I had been working for a specialty contractor for about 10 years at that point in time, and we were undergoing a lean transformation and Um, I was part of our internal lean team. So I got to learn firsthand about applying lean to the organization. And then I stepped into the AEC world um, in 2008 when I was working on big big projects. And that's actually where Dan Fauché and I first crossed paths and uh, was on the California prison receivership team like this huge, crazy um, coopetition, I think we called it. right? Right. It was... All these great design build teams working together, competing and cooperating, trying to um, design and build $7 billion worth of work in California. And so I spent four years as a consultant working for Lean Project Consulting uh, side by side with people like Greg Howell and May Comber and um, some of the early founders of, of the whole movement. And then uh, at one point I had been doing so many projects for J.E. Dunn Construction, they just hired me to be their internal uh, national lean director. So I spent uh, nine years focused on evolving that organization in their lean thinking and execution and developing a team of internal lean specialists. And now since the beginning of 2022, I've been back off on my own consulting, um, really just working with organizations around the country that helping them solve problems, develop capabilities, growing or thinking together, um, and just looking to help build leaders throughout the industry.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. Yeah, that uh, first thread that Rebecca's woven in so well is this learning thread. We're going to come back and tug on that thread in a second. But uh, Dan, please tell the good people of the EBFC show a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I'm a little older than Rebecca, although her lean journey uh-huh. Not well. No, a lot. Uh, her lean journey is a little older than mine. I've been in design and construction for 46, 47 years. That I'll admit, uh, which makes me over 40. Um, I've had like five lifetimes over the years. I think we talked about this once upon a time. I was I was a minister. I actually all during my high school and college years, and the first year of grad school, I, that was my aspiration to be a minister. Uh, in fact, currently I'm I'm living about 10 miles from the first church uh, that I worked at in, the only church I worked at in college. I was student minister for a for church near my uh, you know, undergraduate school. And uh, then I went into uh, prison you know, counseling and administration, youth prisons, uh, a, a grim place. And it was the beginning of the, the uh, gang world in California. So I was in California. Um, and learned a lot for seven years. Then I went into the restaurant business, and then I went into the, the, the computer uh, back of office business, taught a word processor how to do double entry bookkeeping, back, <laughs> back when there were dedicated word processors using, you know, and anyway. Uh, and, and along the way, I discovered construction. I was, I was doing, uh, from a development point of view in, in my restaurant career, I was the developer of, of restaurants then i found myself on the other side as the general contractor and so i was a project manager for general contractors uh, including having a general contractors license in california uh for you know 15 20 years uh went into consulting uh I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, although it is a good part of my background. I did claims consulting for a while and <laughs> learned a lot about what goes wrong on projects and how early you could figure out something was headed south. And if you nip it in the bud then, you would not have problems later. I could prove it on project after project. Um, finally stumbled uh, into, Lean found me uh, in, the, in the form of the, the $7 billion project that Rebecca described and uh, it was the best time of my life uh, in terms of really reorienting, straightening the, the career uh, and heading in the right direction, the most positive direction possible. And I had the privilege of working with Rebecca uh, as one of my teachers and with Greg Howell. Uh, we were, Greg and I were on that project and Dick Byer was my partner at the time. We were on that project for 19 months together. So I literally learned at the feet of the master. Uh, and sometimes the feet of the master were in my house, uh, pulling his wet boots off and plopping down in the in the foyer and just sitting there for an hour and talking. Uh, that was Greg Howell. Uh And in that period of time, by the way, he he uh, came into Dixon in my office one time, plopped down in the chair. It was his thing, and he ran his fingers. He had hair. I don't. He ran his fingers through the hair. And went, oh, I've got this little nonprofit, and I'm not paying attention to it, and I've got to do something with it. And I said, really, what's that called? He said, Lean Construction Institute. And I went, wow, sounds really good. And it has, uh, he he kind of restarted, he and, and Will Lichtig and others kind of restarted it, brought me onto the board, because uh, at that time they were choosing board members based on uh, who they wanted to have dinner with. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little more formalized process now. Um, but I've been in probably several hundred uh, sessions with with at least 100 clients over the last 12 years, 11 years, 12 years, and uh, it's been great, awesome. absolutely awesome. Uh, I have many friends now uh, that I never had and wouldn't have uh, were it not for this, were not for Lean, so
0: I'm here. Yeah, you are absolutely here, and Dan, this is your second time on the EBFC show. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll put a link down to his first interview you can hear much more about this. <laughs> where he and I go deep into claim claim construction and all the glory that you can learn. And we might've said on that show, but it's worth getting or being involved in at least one construction lawsuit in your career, hopefully when you're younger, so that you have time to take advantage of all those learnings in your later years. But the, but thank you so much. And Dan, you, you have had like five different careers for sure, at least and this, I'm sure there's even more that you have done, but we don't you know, talk about those. <laughs> definitely share in common with Rebecca, a willingness to learn and apply what you learn. So there's that, that thread tugged on just a little bit harder. The three of us have had lots of experiences in large and small companies. In, yeah. And we've both, all of us have had uh, experiences in internal and external consulting capacities. Yep. I think it's worth like pulling on this learning string really hard and trying to understand what's the philosophy Of the people leading these organizations, like at the executive level or project management level, that has some ability to create training opportunities for their staff, like these learning paths, like some things are accidental, some things are intentional. Yeah. I'm going to wonder, I think the two of you have got a lot of experience to answer the question Does training lead to learning? And so I want to just open that up as the theme for this show does training lead to learning? Because, I mean, I think we're biased. We might be biased and think that it does, but I'd like to get uh, your initial thoughts on, on that, especially as a title of the show.
1: Yeah. I I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, ju- and take the jump on this one, Felipe. I think in our industry, there's a tendency to believe that any organization that offers training is a learning organization. Right. And, and I, and I don't think that those two things are necessarily equal to each other, or they are absolutely can be connected. You know, putting people in a classroom or going through an exercise or, or whatnot can really help build awareness. But until they put what they've learned or what they've experienced into action, they're not cementing the learning, right? And, um, and it's not just enough to have training, across the board for companies and learning can look like a number of other things as well and where I have seen high performers really grow is when they take ownership of their own learning right and and so they'll be intentional about training classes they take and then putting things into practice they'll be intentional about Setting goals of something else they want to learn outside of that and finding a way to grow themselves, whether it's book study or taking classes outside of their company or reaching out and saying, Hey, Felipe, you're really good at this. Would you consider being my mentor or my coach? You know, taking initiative to continue learning themselves, I think, has been that that's what separates some of the really rock star learners. Um, from others. And then on the flip side, I've also seen some people who have high consumption rates of podcasts and books and articles and things like that, but they don't necessarily put it into practice. Um, And so that's not necessarily helpful either, right? You can have all the head knowledge in the world, but if you don't have the experiential knowledge to go with it, it it doesn't, it's not nearly as meaningful.
2: That's well said. Does training equal learning? Maybe. One of the interesting things is to look at the different forms of consumption of training and see what the retention rate is. The lowest retention rate tends to be with lecture, right? Right. Um, and in fact, I was, I was remembering this morning uh, of a, uh, of a class, my, my first, I psych 101 class as a freshman in college. The college professor, w- this is, Long time ago, before we had whiteboards, they had blackboards with chalk. White yeah. chalk. I remember Dan. I'm that. Those days? <laughs> I lived in those days. Some of
1: our <laughs> listeners might
2: not. <laughs> well the the professor, the students, there about 25 Psych 101 students, some of them would become psychologists. So they were serious. And the students observed that when he was right on the board and turn around and talk to the students. That sometimes it was really engaging, and they would lean forward. And when he did, when they did that, he would do this: he would wipe his hands on his lapels, and there would be chalk dust left on his lapels. So they uh, they conspired between classes. Let's see if we can. We were learning Pavlov. Let's see if we can shape his behavior. So they decided that every time he wrote on the board and turned around, together we would all do this. And he would do this. And at the end of that class, he was covered in white chalk dust. And one of the students busted us, went up and told him what we had done. And he thought it was great. We had internalized Pavlovian responses. Uh, but anyway, so, but, but that's about the only thing I took out of that class. That's the problem with lecture is that it, it, the retention rate is stuff like that. So Rebecca nailed it. She said, it matters that you learn and then do that that put it into action and in lean we have a phrase tightly coupled learning with action so that rather than learn a whole bunch of stuff and then go out and do one thing let's learn and do and learn and do in little increments small steps and and work our way up from awareness to competence and and all in ultimately to mastery but let's let's do it in small batches in little bites uh and uh, and and training at just the moment that you need to apply it you know literally coupled with action and the interesting thing to me is that when one of the military u.s army navy marines air force when they train they don't sit in a classroom and learn a whole bunch of stuff and then wait for a war no they train and then they train in the field go to the gemba right they reproduce this and so that becomes automatic almost autonomic Uh, in the way that they engage their training. So we can learn a lot from some of those kind of things. And definitely small batches, uh, you know, video is great. Uh, I love podcasts and hour-long podcasts are are about what you got to do these days. But uh, training in in a video should be like three to nine minutes. It should be a small, just enough to give you that thing you need and then you go do it. Uh, So you don't have to go searching for it. But yeah, that's that's. Rebecca, I should have just said I, I agree with Rebecca and stopped.
1: No, oh. I love what you said there because now I'm, I'm going to carry on to that too. Good, bit, pile on if you will. Um, yeah. I think part of it too, Felipe, comes back to what outcome are you looking to achieve, right? And and specifically what Dan's talking about, if you're looking to build a competency in something, you have got to couple that learning with action, or else you won't build that competency. Now, I do think there is a place and a space for high level awareness training for new ideas. And, new, you know, I mean, this roadshow that I just mentioned that earlier that, that we're doing when people don't have exposure to something, it helps them understand why they need to maybe learn more. Um, but if you're trying to actually if you're looking for an outcome of competency in a skill, there has to be action embedded in the training or has to take place right afterwards needs to right for, for optimum results.
0: And I, I've had people message me on some of the things that both of you said to unpack just a little bit like someone has said, you know, what's a good book I should read And then I said, I don't know let's talk first And we start talking and I come to realize that the, Rebecca exactly described the person that's read every book, consumed every podcast on the topic, like at nauseum, but has done zero to apply it. And I said to them, I was like, well, I would turn it back and say, what was your favorite thing that stuck with you? Like in Dan's example, he remembered that teacher getting made to get his coat dirty like, like a dog hearing, you know, the bell to drool, like in the classic Pavlovian experiment. Okay, that thing that you really liked, that stood out to you. What can you experiment with on that tomorrow? to get them to take some action. I said, now, based on that change, then come back to me and let's see what we can recommend. And 10 out of 10 times, Rebecca, they don't come back because they're in a habit of just consuming, consuming, consuming and piling in and piling and stuffing everything they can in and nothing ever gets out this way. Unfortunate. So I, I think for, for leadership listening to this, if you've got a reason to put people into a training, like Rebecca and Dan said, what outcome are you looking for? Do yeah. you just want to take people out of work for two days and, you know, buy them some cheap continental breakfast or a decent lunch and say, thank you for being here. Or are you trying to change something about your business? And I think that's something that we sometimes miss. Pull on that thread just a little bit tighter. I mean, the two of you have amazing experiences. Like I said, large companies, small companies, multi-billion dollar projects, thousand dollar quick hitting projects. And your experiences, what type of training do you think results in the best staff retention? Where we can go see after that they are different because of what they've experienced.
2: Two, there are two kinds, two forms of training that I think are most valuable. Uh, one is uh, training c- coupled with a coach. Uh, we have there are, there are some really great stats about how much gain there is, comparative gain there is, in in coaching as in addition to training. In training, you get like a 20, uh, I think it's a Harvard business day, 28% increase or 24% increase in productivity if you do good training. If you couple that with coaching, it jumps to 88%. So it, there is a human element to this. Part of it is the relatedness that we were discussing earlier, uh, you know, the, one of the three motivators, internal motivator. Uh, and and you're building competency, but you're building it with relatedness. Uh, and, the, and then the other aspect of this is this DC and Ryan understanding that the third thing that motivates people, the third internal need that motivates people is autonomy. So letting people choose the thing that they're interested in and train in that. The problem is that people don't like to admit when they're not good at something, particularly people in positions of responsibility. So so one of the ways you can do that is make a banquet of training available to them and let them choose the dishes that they're going to train in right now autonomously it's more motivating to them it addresses that immediate need and they don't have to fess up that i'm a superintendent and i don't don't know any way to do last planner uh it's much better if they can learn it uh, you know either in in a in a group
0: or individually uh to do that and and then it sticks no well done yeah how about you rebecca anything you want to add to that about what type of training do you see gets the best staff retention? Like Dan said, seeing that 20% adoption of what they learn, those concepts.
1: I think that it again, like there's a lot of mediums out there that you can use for training, right? You can do in person stuff, you can do virtual things, you can do videos, you can do. And I think Dan's point about coupling it with a coach, I would say someone who can at least. Help understand the outcome you're trying to achieve with that person or group and make sure that it's directed and geared towards that outcome. Right. And, you know, some virtual training sessions have actually been really, really effective. I've seen that, but some of them are terrible. Some in person training sessions can be terrible, even if there are exercises involved and, you know, some of those sticky kind of things. If they're led by someone who maybe would be better skilled doing something different, right? Um, it's uh, so it's it I, well, even I,
2: a sage on a stage.
1: They're <laughs> trying, right? I mean, people are, people always do these things with in, uh, good intentions, and and God knows I have um, learned a lot about some of those kinds of things. You know that the organization I was with for nine years, one of the first things we did was brought all these people into this great two-day training class. They all learned a lot, but then when they all went back to their projects, they stumbled and fell because they had no one there to help them day in, day out. And, I, and, and they were too far removed from the time of learning to action. So learned really quickly that it doesn't do any good to arm people with pitchforks and you know, torches and let them go, go carry, right? If you're not going to help them, help them implement what they're doing. So it, it, Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to the question. I think it ties right back to what are you looking to achieve? And Dan said this earlier and I'll use a slightly different language, just in time. Yeah. Right? I think yeah. that is really right. When I, when I'm going to need that skill, that's when you need to teach it to me. That will be, that, or I need to learn it, that will be your best retention, right? If I can go ahead and put that right in the practice.
2: No, that's that's smart. And uh, I, uh, let me add to that. You said earlier, Rebecca, you mentioned video training, and I happen to have a soft spot for video training <laughs> because we do that. Um, but one of the things that the just-in-time aspect is, is that you can learn that You need a refresher. And uh, you know as much as I advocate coaching, uh, coaching isn't going to be around 24-7. Uh, so that that video clip, that three to nine minute video clip on that specific thing on a just-in-time basis is a perfect refresher to get right back into it. So this is a, we're really, we should be talking about learning rather than training, I think, uh, because learning is pull and training has the implication of push. Uh, and we know in the lean community, pull trumps push every time, pull beats push every time, uh, almost every time. Um, push when you must, Greg Howell said um so the the ability to match the type of training that's available and the moment that it's needed is really key
0: yeah, i had the the honor of working with an organization recently that had uh, a business problem that mm-hmm. the market had shifted and they had this entire group of people i'm going to leave it anonymous to protect the guilty and the innocent oh <laughs> like and they had, so the market shifted where they were working and they were working across uh, a significant geography in the United States and they didn't have a way, they they didn't have a process to even communicate with the different people in this group to tell them that the market had shifted. Like leadership had understood it, they were seeing the metrics with it and they were not delivering. And so mm-hmm. they engaged me and I said, well, I think we should start with telling people like why you want to make this training mandatory. Like, What's the reason? And they're thinking like, do we really need to tell people that? If we just invite them, won't they just come? I was like, not nah, maybe 10 years ago, but not in today's environment. And so just like the market shifted for you, and did anyone predict that this was change was going to happen? They're in an environment now where they're going to more uh, collaborative type of contracting. It's things like uh, design build and integrated project delivery. That's the new thing to them. They've, they've been more used to a hard bid for forever. Their entire company history is they've thrived in that environment. Now it's not it's not there anymore to the numbers that it used to be. And so we had to open up each session with uh, why are you here and just be completely honest about the things that they were missing. And all the right away, the feedback at the first break from the employees was that I had no idea. I thought everything was just going great. We didn't know. And it definitely changed the level of engagement. The executives and the leaders realized that this is not going to be one and done. This is a ton of information that they wanted. Not even like to you guys, to your point, sometimes there's such a thing as too much. And there's there's only so much that people can take in. They got to weave it in. Like you said, Dan, I think this was a great showing here visually. And with my hands, I've got my fingers intercrossed. And you got to bring in the, the stuff that people need, couple that with the needs of the organization, but don't forget the needs of the individuals. Like, are we setting our people up to thrive? Are we just checking a box to say that we've done something and that they've been exposed? You're describing
2: autonomy. When you say people need to know the why, DC and Ryan say as a part of learning, as a part of, of just working, in order to be motivated, employees need autonomy. They need to know first, why am I doing this? What, what's Why am I doing this work? You know why are you assigning me this project why are you well, what why 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 are we doing this if we don't understand the why we're being told to do something and the motivation fizzles uh being able to know why and then choose to to do that is is key and that's true with whether it's a learning experience or or work itself uh the why is really important i agree with you Dan, yeah, i like so, that just 40 years of research <laughs>
0: and that that's a small thread that's worth pulling on too like Yep. The philosophy of the executives running an organization or the the, pro, the project leaders that, again, have the ability to designate time for training on the job or as a, a company-wide, what type of training do we have? In construction, both of you know, most medium-sized companies and larger only bring people in for training two times a year on average. Just yeah. a teeny, teeny, tiny number. It's <laughs> like. You work 52 weeks a year and out of 52 weeks, you've got some vacation. And then two days out of 365 right. people come in on average to train. And that is such a consistent number. I've seen that with trade contractors, general contractors, specialty contractors, and the number gets worse with consultants. I think there's even less <laughs> consulting organizations because they're all expected to always <sighs> round running. They know everything, yeah. yeah. They're supposed to know everything, but, I think philosophically, is there a connection between training and company culture from your guys' perspectives? I think we'll go to let's go to Rebecca first.
1: I, you know, I think Felipe, there there absolutely is. And and I'd I'd like to, and I'll touch on some of the things that you also mentioned a few minutes ago about that other client and that that other training. So two of the organizations that I'm currently working with, um, two very different stories, but both of them we are looking to try to inject small ongoing regular trainings that everybody can attend um, on a regular basis. And we're doing them remote because the companies, both of them have sizable geographic footprints. One is more across the country, one is more regional. Um, and we're we're starting all of those, either starting or ending, um, first of all, why? What is the problem we're trying to solve with this little snippet of something we're, we're training you on? Um, and then when, when applicable, not only why, but what's in it for you, yeah. right? What, so when, how is this going to make Dan's day better when he learns this, right? Why, not only why is it a good thing to learn organizationally, but, but now let's, let's help you be selfish about it, right? Yeah. Um, and then trying to end a lot of them very intentionally with, okay, so we just talked through a whole bunch of things here is one action you can go try and implement and go do, and then reach out for help or talk to a friend or whatever. Um, and I think as you get more people engaged in learning together, the it absolutely impacts your company culture in a positive way because you've got more engagement, right? So, um, and, and training is one of those ways that you can do it if you if you bring in good threads of training. If it's like that example you, you mentioned, and yes, I've seen plenty of that, um, where it's just two days a year, right? It It doesn't foster the mindset that we want people continuously learning, right? If I only get to go learn something two days a year, and it's not part of my daily or weekly work, right, if we're not teaching people to reflect and learn based on their own work every single day, you can't be, you're not becoming a learning organization. And, and that's not what sets people apart, right? When people get engaged and they're, they're taking ownership of their learning, their managers and their peers are helping them learn. You know, one of the big shifts I've seen lately is a um, lot of organizations focusing more on setting development goals for their people and then teaching their managers how to coach their employees to, become, to grow in those development areas. And, and many times we're seeing um, very well-intended people who have been very successful in the construction industry for a long time treat those just like the regular old smart goals of like you have to accomplish X amount of sales by the end of the year, right? (laughs) And so it'll take us time to get there. But those leaders who are taking the time to develop their people, you bet we're seeing a difference in the culture of the organizations and a positive momentum in a big way.
2: Rebecca's describing an intentional culture, building an intentional culture. Every company has a culture. And for a whole lot of them, It's either accidental or it has evolved over the years and whoever was the CEO or the chief operations officer or the project manager on a project kind of led the the culture in a certain way, or maybe it rebelled against that and it went a whole nother way and the one of the diciest things is for middle management to learn new skills, or be expected to do things differently, because they've been mastering the company culture all these years to climb up that ladder. And if that ladder changes, they're a little resistant to it. So getting that group involved, enthusiastic, and you were describing some pushback from some people who didn't want to become coaches to the, to the other, because this changes things. And now how do I climb this ladder? But the the idea of setting an intentional culture on a project equally importantly maybe more importantly in an organization Uh, rebecca is really good at this because she's been at the in the c-level offices uh professionally uh long enough to to really uh, have observed that i've done some of that but she's better at it than i am i think uh, so, so listen to what Rebecca's saying because she's very smart, and her experience tells me a lot.
0: And I think Dan, when you said a little resistant, I would, I would say that <laughs> actively working yeah. to stop you. Yeah, there will be people in middle management, and it's and it's because that's the system that's in place. Like exactly like you said, if there's if there's unspoken rules and the culture of how people elevate and move up. And suddenly the organization tries to inject a change, not realizing that it's a massive system-wide change. People will actively work against it. And and they don't realize they're cutting their own throats because
2: construction is going through a period of disruption. We have some massive problems, and our productivity is awful. Uh, And everybody knows it, including the owners, and they're tired of it. Uh, and if we did things right, we could save 1.6 trillion dollars a year, and put it to good use building more things. Uh, but but we're not doing that. And and training is is a and building of intentional culture is a big part of the solution of doing that. There are others, but that's a big part. Of
0: it. I want to go back to one more thing, Rebecca. You, you touched on and Dan, you touched on this also. But this idea of employee engagement and Rebecca, when I shifted that question for you about retention. I think it's worth stating that Gallup, Gallup Research, who's also owns the Clifton Strengths Finder. Again, we'll put yeah. a link in the description for people that want to get their their top five strengths. But Gallup has done research on this time and time again. And in the United States, I don't know about internationally, but here in the U.S., employee engagement across industries is less than seventy percent. So it means like only a third of your employees or less are actively engaged in the business of what your company does, and the other three quarters, don't care. They just, they're apathetic. I mean, this is right from the research, like apathetic means they are not connected to the success or failure of what the operation is doing. And so if you think about, if I have a team of 10 people, that means I've got three people engaged and driving to successful project delivery. And I have seven people that just show up and get a paycheck, do the minimum to not get yelled at or be noticed or whatever else, and just don't actively care. That is what the research does. And unfortunately, I think all of us have had experience with project teams or organizations where we see those numbers reflected in reality.
2: Yeah, they're, they're along for the ride and, and the paycheck. And because they don't want to do nothing, you know, they can live a little better if they get a paycheck. Uh, and I don't understand that. I've never understood that. Uh, because uh, you know I'm one of those guys that says, why am I alive? You know, and in my lowest moments, why are any of us alive? Uh, and by the way, in those lowest moments, and we've all been there, the the answer that has kept me going sometimes is to help alleviate the suffering of children. I mean, if there's no other reason to be alive, that's that's a pretty good reason right there. And then you can work your way up to 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 helping the company make more profit at some point. But it starts with a base of humanity. And then working your way up. If you're not engaged in work, why are you there?
1: Well, uh, and I, I think Dan, you know, to, to throw a, a little bit of, of empathy out there for folks, I think it's a very wicked problem, right? There are a lot of yeah. a lot of facets to it. Um, but the culture that we were just talking about, I mean, the culture is that's okay, right? That is status quo, that's fine, that's how people get promoted. And and I would say those people, while they might not be heavily engaged in their work, they generally care about their paycheck. They generally care about promoting up the ladder so that they can make more money. Right. So, and, and they look at their job as something that is there to serve them. So it's not that they just don't, right. They just don't care. I think, and it's, it's a shame because there is so much more life has to offer by being engaged in what you do, life can get so much better, but I think people don't recognize that. Right. And, and, and that's really a shame. And I think once you get, once you wind up in a role where you are engaged in what you're doing and engaged and invested in the success of your organization, it's hard to settle to not have that again right? Really, really hard to settle. Yeah.
2: One of the ways I think bosses, you know, people come to a company because the work is interesting, sounds interesting, or they, for whatever reason, but they leave by and large because of their boss. Uh, I mean, that's like 60, 70% of of all outgoes are that. One of the things bosses can do is start paying attention to the people, is actually engage one on one with the individuals, get to know them, get over yourself, boss, uh, and get to know people and and find out what what's really bugging me. you know through the the two years that we've been dealing with the COVID stuff uh, and some of it in lockdown and some of it masked and all of it, the the impact psychologically to all of us has been significant and if we don't recognize that where i don't think you have to recognize if you if you don't see it in yourself you probably should look a little harder and if you don't see it in others you're really blind uh and and people are suffering in ways that they can't talk about and in construction you really can't talk about it um and and there are companies now both uh, one of them turner another uh that have programs to help to actually actively be there for people but if you're a supervisor, you're already there. Right. You know? and, and you have an opportunity to affect five, eight, 10, 30 people in a profound way that may be that may save their life or at least help them unlock the pain they're in and, and get it out. And let's go forward. I mean, there are lots and and that's the relatedness that leads to the openness and the autonomy that will develop the competence that we all want in life uh which is what training and learning is all about i do and and i've seen that rebecca opened my head by the way when she 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 said well there some of our listeners are those people dan <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> here i am capping on people who are not engaged and i'm talking to people who are not engaged let's understand let's understand that
0: too so thank you systemic thing like we're not uh we're not blaming the individuals that are In that three quarters, 70%, it's the environment that they come to work in. And it's one of the great things about where I'm working now at Bolt, like they literally have people that have even special sticker designations and have pulled for training and volunteered to be someone that you can go and talk to. And they're at all different levels of the organization. I met one that's in like supply chain logistics, and I've met a few that are actual executives and some even running entire offices and regions. And you could literally just walk in and just say... I need to talk about this and I don't need you to do anything other than just listen. No. They know exactly how to receive you, to engage with you, to follow up, keep you connected. It's incredible. And it's something so radically different. This didn't exist five years ago.
2: Well, in, in Bolt, it didn't exist a year ago. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I had, I had the privilege of having a conversation with Renee and I forget her last name. I'm sorry, Renee, um, who is, coordinating that program and saw the little three minute video that they put it, it's a it's brilliant that's one of the ways you break through in things like that
0: yeah i think it's actually renee wolf thank, thank you, you. yeah
2: thank you renee and i apologize renee it took a felipe to help me remember
0: I will, i'll tell her no that you shouted out to her in this episode dan so love that i just met her in wisconsin uh like two weeks ago for the first time she is
2: so warm. I f- I felt like confessing to her. I I'm you know, telling her my problems, and she she calls herself a health coach. Uh, God, don't we all need a health coach? I mean, come yeah.
0: on. We do. <laughs> I want to. I like. those. let's go into a positive spin on that yeah. where there is things. There are things that we can do. Yes. And so one of the things that we in the Lean community understand is this concept of small batching, and small batching, s- small bite-sized chunks, little increments. You guys have both hit on that, and People, I've taken Dan's courses on his website. I highly recommend you do the same in any myriad of topics. It's like an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord buffet of things that you can take and, and bite-sized chunks and get to start practicing and implementing. But why, why the small batches? Like Intuitively, we know, but other people know big batch. Big batch is predominant across the industry. Why small batches?
2: Uh, let me add, say a couple of quick things, and then I'll let Rebecca give the real answer. But small, small proof—it's easy to prove that small batching in in dealing with atoms, you know, ma- materials, or 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 even in dealing with electrons in design. But small batching gets you to the end faster. Uh, there's a little video on in Construction Accelerator you was talking about that that shows that it literally demonstrates with a timer. If you do batches of five or ten or one, and everybody in manufacturing knows single batching, single piece flow is the way. But in terms of learning, it goes back to the things Rebecca was saying about uh, you know just in time and 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 doing it you know in in small increments. We we are in the short attention span generation. We are the short attention span generation. We I mean I, it amazes me. That, that people listen to a one-hour podcast, it's got to be really compelling because that's a whole hour. They do it, I think, while they're driving <laughs> because they probably would be watching TV otherwise. But um, and, and people don't read books as much anymore either. Uh, I mean, a lot of people do and they brag about it, but th- <laughs> it's harder to read a book than it is to watch a, a quick video. And YouTube, pff, full of quick videos, they've demonstrated that. So the small batch learning is just the it's just what fits our lifestyle. It's what we have time for. It's it fits our short attention span interest and allows you to target right to what you want to know right now. Fair. Now, Rebecca, give me the real answer. Yeah,
1: Dan, I love everything you said. I will add on to that, um, but it's no more real than what you just said, is it gives you time to again going back to putting what you're learning into practice. It gives you time to cement that learning. And you know, if you, and Felipe, you mentioned this in in your story you told just a few minutes ago, if you're trying to share 100 pieces of information with people and you fill a whole day teaching them these 100 pieces of information, they will not be able to be competent in any of them. Teach them one, get them competent, then teach them two, then teach them the third, then the fourth, right? And and go through helping them learn and get a handle on one before moving on to the second concept, right? It it's now sometimes you're dealing with a concept that might be a little bit of a sticky wicket and might have multiple concepts embedded within it. Last planner system's a great example, right? It it in and of itself is actually a pretty big complex system, not complex like difficult, but just there's a lot of parts and pieces to it. Um, so it's helpful for, for people to understand, the have whole. awareness of the overall whole, and then start mastering those pieces one at a time, or at least learning them one at a time and putting them into practice. one time. So I think when, you know, when you put too many things in front of somebody at a time, even if they have the attention span to pay attention to all of it, they're once you're done, they're going to forget half of what they learned because there are just too many things that you've tried to cram into that brain.
2: There, there's a teacher at Wichita State that uh, uses an example, Rebecca, that that, that I think fits here. Uh, he says there, there are two people, a man and a woman, who are standing on the ground looking at a building and there's a second floor balcony on the building and they both want to go there. There's a party. I don't know. So the man says well i i'm I'm really good in basketball i'm a good jumper i'm going to jump up there but it's a 12 15 foot balcony so good luck with that so he starts trying to really get jumping up there right the woman sees a set of stairs around the corner and she just walks over and walks up all the little stairs step by step by step by step and she gets there and the guy's still down there trying to jump up that's the difference between small batch learning and gulp batch of learning,
0: you know, uh, it, it's a, it's, that's the difference. Oh my God, man, that, that analogy is so beautiful. Just last week, I was talking to Nick, Nick Loughran, this, this is the shout out for you, Nick. And mm-hmm. we were, we were describing this, this concept of how people learn just in general, just having a general concept about learning. And I said, you know, sometimes people have this like mountain of stuff, like you said, like up on the balcony. And we're asking people to jump over the Grand Canyon to get to the other side to where all that stuff is. And I said, you can't get there. You got to go step by step down, cross the river. Luckily, it's because of drought, It's you can just walk across it and then, and then go back up the other side and to get there. But the, the journey down, across, and up is even more valuable than Good. reaching the balcony, Not. to use your example, or jumping over the Grand Canyon. So yep. that's, that's beautiful. So I, I think that you guys hit on the benefits of, of like the small batch, but to piggyback on that, because we're talking about human beings here, are there benefits when people can work in small groups, or do you think there's even more benefit of people being self-guided all by themselves or with their team and little groups, individuals or teams? What do you think? Whatever they want,
2: <clears throat> whichever appeals to them more, um, Rebecca used to work for a company that invented something called study action groups, where they would read a book and they would meet once a week, right? Isn't that the way it worked? Uh, read a chapter, meet once a week and talk about it, and then what action will you take based on that? So Felipe, you mentioned our 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 videos. We've developed video action team guides for people to watch 15 minutes worth of video and then meet in the same small group of six to eight people, 45 minutes a week. So now, all these are all short times and discuss there's the guide kind of gives them some questions to talk about to help them um and then what is the action you're going to take this week to put that into practice so i think and and i was just talking literally yesterday uh to to a lady named Ritu in Canadian construction in Canada i know ritu do you know ritu She's, no, shout out to ritu <laughs> I, every time i talk to her i end up so more energized yeah. that you know i, I and I was in the car, so I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, <clears throat> but the, she's got video action teams going, particularly with superintendents, uh, and to, to having great effect. There's another group called uh, uh, MCR Trust, uh, based in Boston, but they got they, they build all over America. They're self builders, and uh, I'm part of uh, a video action team that they're doing for eight or ten folks in uh, in New England. Well, one of them is in Denver. With, Rebecca, but, um, and it is exciting to me because I, I facilitated the first one just to kick it off. And then they take turns facilitating. It's exciting to me the way these discussion groups unfold and they, the things they teach each other or pull from each other. And some are shared experiences and some are unique experiences. And this small batch learning together is really powerful. And I, I mean, I have so many energizing people and things in my life. Uh, it, 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 these kinds of things really excite me.
1: Multiple perspectives, right? Building on each other. So yes, self-guided individual learning is fantastic, right? I will never knock that. I think that is always a good thing, but when you can pull different perspectives together to maybe this is something I took out of what we tried to do and Dan took something different or. He sees my blind spot to what I learned, and I I say, oh well, this is what I learned. And I says, whoa, 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 wait, be cautious because. Blah, blah, blah. So I think when you can get a small group to learn together in any way, shape, or form, I think that's fantastic. As long as you've got that right level of at risk of using an overused term nowadays, psychological safety amongst that group, right? Where people can push back. And and we really are trying with that team to build healthy conflict because you get so much more out of it. So then where you might have learned 10%, now you might learn 50% more based on talking with other people about it. And that, Felipe might be some of my individualization coming out.
0: <laughs> no, it's like- Sometimes when you talk, Rebecca, it's almost like you're taking it right from my mind.
1: <laughs>
0: so That's thanks for about the
1: secret chat thread. We
0: yeah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, Rebecca and I are secretly chatting through this technology. No, we're just uh, sharing like mind, like mindedness. Yeah. It's such a good, uh, so positive. I want to just flip it. Let's go to the dark side for a second because I'll, we wouldn't be doing it justice if we didn't come back to the other side the resistors like we said so hmm. we've we've all heard excuses like i'm too busy to train or we've seen that that cartoon picture and i'm going to put it on the screen here so people could see people pushing a wheelbarrow pushing a wheelbarrow type of cart with square wheels and somebody offering them round wheels hmm. and the people pushing saying we're too busy no. because we're pushing this cart. so How do we help people overcome that excuse of I'm too busy to train or we're in crunch time right now. We don't have time to stop and pause and change direction, even though all metrics point to a crash landing way beyond what they contractually owe. How do we help people find time to learn?
2: Stand back and watch them fail. They'll learn it good when they do that. I prefer not to. I'm not saying that's the best way. <laughs> I'm saying that's one way is that is that the universe will teach you very heavy lessons one way or the other. You're going to learn. It. But, uh, Rebecca, there's, there's got to be a better way. I, uh,
1: you know, the especially right now in our industry, everybody is working crazy effort. Right. And. So, so your, your question, Felipe, is that much more exasperated right now. And I think a couple of, a couple of things that can be helpful. Um, it's not hard to get anybody to admit that if I don't improve what I do at some point, other people will improve and be better than me, right? People can kind of fundamentally recognize that there is a need to grow. So now it's a matter of after you get them to recognize that helping them figure out how to take the time to learning. And some of that is, you know, companies need to be more intentional with all the things that Dan and I have been talking about, right? About the just in time training, right? Don't bring people together for a week to train them on a bunch of stuff they're not going to use for a year, right? right. Um, don't bother doing that. Do just in time learning. The other piece that I would say. Um, and the helping them recognize what's in it for them and all, all of those things. Um, there's a great little story in uh, Stephen Spears' book, Chasing the Rabbit. I think now it's called High Velocity Edge, where a bunch of nurses were supposed to be making improvements to work and they were too busy. Yeah. And so what they did is they said, OK, we're busy, but we can we can figure out how to set aside 15 minutes a day. and as that 15 minutes, as they started making improvements, they got more time back. And so then they grew the amount of time they committed to it. But if you're intentional about your learning, maybe it doesn't need to be even 15 minutes a day. maybe 15 minutes a week. I'm gonna learn 15 minutes a week and whatever I learn, I'm gonna put into practice. Yeah. And that should make my job a little bit better. And then we'll take that. And so find what is that smallest amount of time that you can possibly give up and just start somewhere. Because starting somewhere is better than not starting.
2: Rebecca said something magical. She yeah. said they they started with 15 minutes a day addressing the problems that they were having. And as they solved the problems, they had more time. Felipe, you said people are working far too many hours right now and they're exasperated. Part of the problem is we're wasting we're, all of this extra time we're spending is waste. We're not going home seeing our family and our kids and spouse because we're wasting time with waste <laughs> and and so for the for the person that doesn't think they have time to train, I would suggest they train on 5y and root cause analysis and apply it to one problem that they're having. find out the real root cause because all you're imagining and and is all BS. It, it isn't like what you had before. This is a new problem. This is a different solution. Uh, we don't even know what the solution is. We what we, we can try. Mitigation measures we can try. D- just start with that. I mean, watch a 15-minute video on root cause analysis and then do it. Uh, and, and on one problem you're having, that's the Paul Akers formula, right? D- fix what bugs you. Whatever's driving you crazy, fix that. Uh, and, and you'll probably get a little more time, like Rebecca says. And, and you kind of grow it from it. And then you start
0: applying it to other kinds of things. But start with something. My goodness. My goodness. I love that, Dan. And then you guys, you know, you're talking about like the story with the nurses. Rebecca was awesome. Yeah. Dan, reminding us, you know, how simple Paul Akers makes it for fixing what bugs you. How do we cultivate that type of leadership or that shift inside of our project teams or across organizations? What would you, for the the people in the C-suites listening or the project executives or just the leads on jobs, what can they do to cultivate leadership today? They gotta be part of the solution, right Rebecca? Uh,
1: You know, the the thing that comes to my mind, the first thing is you have to lead by example. And so often a project leader or a company leader, they say, this is great. We need all of you to go do this. Uh, No, take time to do it yourself. You have room to learn too. And show people that you're learning, right? That is the, you can tell your, your direct reports or your people or your kids to do whatever you want to tell them to do, but they're going to watch how you behave. And they're going to, under, and they're going to make an assessment. Is it more important to do what they're doing or to do what they're telling me to do? So I, that feels overly simplified, but for me, no. that's what it really boils down
2: to. I, I think you hit it. Uh, you know Philippe you were part of a, what we called the gang of 16 a year ago uh that I assembled and and then they took off and did great things um and it, this is this was a group of 16 lean leaders in in the broader community it included uh owners like Merck and and University of California San Francisco and Sutter health it included uh designers like uh Bueller engineering and WSP and others and uh BSA life structures was on it. It included uh, the, some of the trades like uh, Atlantic Constructors and Lighthouse Electric, my buddy, Bob Solage, uh, Neville Group, Rosenden, Stephanie Roldan, awesome. Um, and it included a whole bunch of general contractors, Brassfield and Gory, Landis, McCarthy, Robinson, Morton, Sunt, Turner, and WGH. I used the list because I didn't want to leave anybody out. That group of people came up with five ways for us to recover from the pandemic and and build pull lean more deeply into our organizations and of the five ways one of them was leadership from the top understanding the business case for lean uh, executive engagement executive strategy uh and and actually embedding goal setting uh and and tactical, you know, lean tactical information, but, but it's got to start with, the, I can't tell you of all of the companies that I've worked with well over a hundred and I quit counting it hundred. most did not include working with the C suite C-suite I'm, I'm sorry, it's stop it, it, it just, it, <laughs> well, it, it came, I mean, a few did and hooray for them. Um, and I, I genuinely appreciated it and it made a difference. Uh, but but mostly it came from the field folks who had a problem and needed to learn something uh, or from a lean champion who wanted to, to kind of help grow the movement. But the, the C-suite has kind of been MIA in a lot of this and, and that's not good. that's that's sad. There are notable exceptions. Uh, Victor San Vito. Uh, there are notable exceptions. Uh, but but that's if we don't have leadership, Leading in in reducing waste that's hitting their bottom line, and in building greater value for their customers that's hitting their bottom line and their top line, uh, then then we're not doing the right thing.
0: Absolutely.
1: I I just want to add on to that. Right, all the work Dan has done without involving C suite has been phenomenal work and seen great results at the same yeah. time. Right, it just. Yeah. Your question, Felipe, was very specifically about an organizational climate, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's where you absolutely, you cannot shift an organizational culture or climate or expectations without the C-suite being part of that. Yeah,
2: that's, that is the great thing about lean and, and tools like Last Planner, Root Cause Analysis and 5Y is that you can do them at any level. You can do them anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and get great results. And get great results. I mean, seriously, I worked with a team on a on a six hundred and forty-eight million dollar project. pardon me, project in Stockton, California. And we talked about this in the last uh, podcast, Philippe. And they literally doubled production in six weeks using a last planner. That that's like shocking. It blew my mind. They had to do it to make the schedule, but they did it. And this is with hundreds of people out there. In the workforce, but just by removing stupid waste of handoffs and not planning for this and that, just by putting intention into it, they doubled productivity. Uh, and and that's not your mileage may vary, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's not unusual to get twenty seven percent increase. I I can document that, um, and. So it's it's great. Start anywhere, but my goodness, leaders, uh, we need you. We want you. And by the way, your your company needs you. (laughs) This is a call to arms. Your company needs you. You will be greatly enhanced. You'll have more fun. You will be celebrated uh, for your brilliance. And uh, and by the way, your bottom line will will improve significantly.
0: True, true, and true. At at the worst case, you're going to get twenty five percent faster on your schedules. Right. With this like ad hoc stuff. Now, if you go, come on, bring bring the leaders in. But Dan is absolutely right. Like, how many leaders are out there that are not having fun every day? How many leaders are listening to the show now where you dread to hear your phone ring or to see an email come in because you know it's like some massive problem that's going to be an undertaking to resolve or things that you're putting off because it's not fun? Now, if you engage like Rebecca and Dan are talking about and you shift the system just right here. You just shift it right here like a game it can absolutely be fun it can be absolutely engaging and i want to go back to rebecca rebecca final thread to pull on how do you turn frontline supervisors into effective coaches you've been a dan you've been a coach for my lifetime rebecca's lifetime in five (laughs) different industries let me start with rebecca first how do you turn a frontline supervisor into an effective coach
1: yeah, so Felipe, that could be a whole separate podcast section. So just that oh, my high sequel. levels <laughs> right but 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 high level pieces first of all, the understanding and expectation that that is what we want them to do at an in organizational level and then teach them how to coach. So, some of the best people that can be really natural at this are some of the old school superintendents. Not the ones who were necessarily dictatorial, but the ones who, and, and, and one of my last jobs, we called it back counter training, right? But that take the younger generation under their arm and under their wing and help them grow and develop, right? But helping give our supervisors a, a process and an understanding of how that, how they can be better coaches and how that is now part of what we want you to do. And it ties back to what we were talking about, about developing people. And, um, you know, to, to just tell people what to do all the time is very opposite from coaching people, right? Coaching people, you want to show them, but then you want to help them learn to figure it out for themselves. And then you want to help them learn to figure out new ways to do things so that you can learn from them. But if you don't set that expectation and you don't help them learn how to be coaches... You can tell them, but that's not going to get them anywhere. If they don't understand. They need help learning how to do it if they haven't done it before.
2: A couple of days ago, uh, three other coaches and I did a, a uh, webinar for LCI on coaching coaches, coaches, coaching coaches. <laughs> I can't even say it. Um, it's such a good title. It's, it's unpronounceable. What the, the steps that Rebecca is talking about are first develop an intention to coach. It is different than leading. Um, and she hit the second one, and that is stop giving answers. Um, the leader knows more than other people supposedly or very often. Um, and certainly in our mind, we know more. Um, but stop. You don't need to be the one solving the problem if you're going to coach, because what the, the goal is for the other person to figure out how to solve the problem. Uh, so then number three is ask really good questions. Non-judgmental, uh, you know, empathetic, uh, and and don't give away answers. Uh, open-ended questions. Just open. Just ask open questions. What do you think? What kind of information will you need to figure this out? Instead of well, you're going to need this and this and this. No. What kind of information will you need to figure this out? Those kinds of things. There are steps to learn to being a coach. It's not. They're not complicated. They're five. Uh, I've given you three, and and I'll stop. But um, the it's the other part is, um, it's okay, I'll give you four. The other (laughs) part is, you've got to become humble. You've got to go from from the the boss leadership role, which very often, I mean, leaders should be humble anyway. So servant leadership is, is the ideal, but be humble about it. Uh, You may or may not know all the answers, you don't need to as a coach. It's helpful to know the language, and to know BS when you see it. But you're really in pulling answers out of other people.
0: Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much, Rebecca. The two of you have really scratched the itch to go deep into learning and understand the differences between learning, training, intentional culture setting. I absolutely have enjoyed this time with both of you. Where can people find you all if they wanna connect and go deeper?
1: Um, The easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. I will one day have a website. (laughs) <laughs> but that'll be years from now. So um, LinkedIn, Rebecca Snelling, at, or RS Consulting.
0: And we'll put a link down there in the description so people can just click or tap your way awesome. right to a direct message with Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. How about you, Dan?
2: And apparently Rebecca has the ability to mind engage, at least with you, Felipe. So maybe you can just contact Rebecca by sending her like a, a bat sign or something. <laughs> so uh, for me, I'm sorry, I, I took too long. For me, uh, LinkedIn works works great. Uh, if, if you can spell fauché, good luck with that. Um, the website is trycanow.com. And you can reach me through there. And I'm everywhere on the internet, I'm afraid. I've been around a long time.
0: Many, many pages.
2: It's been my pleasure
0: having you guys here on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Felipe. This has been awesome.
0: It's
2: been fun. Always. Rebecca, you're a gem and a star.
0: Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe everybody, let's go build.